Hello, Peter Hirschfeld. Hello, Angela Evansy. I understand you have a confession to make? I do. Um, there was a time not so long ago that I hoped this episode of Brave Little State would never be reported into existence. <laughs> and we should give some backstory here. Uh, before a reporter starts working on an episode, we run a public voting round where we put three listener questions up for a public vote. We ask listeners to decide which one we should answer. And, you know, it must be said, sometimes the reporter on that episode is secretly rooting for a certain question to win. And, I mean, this this was definitely one of them. Um, one of these questions was from a guy who basically wanted to know, what's up with ice fishing? And I, I saw it and could just suddenly see myself uh, somewhere in the Northeast Kingdom, sitting on a beautiful lake, uh, hanging out with fun people, sharing beef jerky, and, uh, you know, just escaping from the pandemic. But that's not what happened. The people spoke, and they said, Pete, you're not going ice fishing. You are going to report an episode about education funding. Education funding, the the polar opposite of ice fishing. Um, So, you know, listeners, if you are lucky enough to own a house or even have a mortgage on a house, you know that you pay taxes on that property, the land that it's on. And that's how we fund public education. And Pete, we got this question, right? Someone was like, what if we didn't do it that way? What if we funded public education not by taxing people's property, but by taxing their income. Yeah, and uh, I'll admit, I was disappointed when ice fishing didn't win at first. Uh, But I suddenly was reminded of how amazing tax policy is. Um, It's one of the reasons I love covering the legislature. Um, Tax policy, in a lot of ways, is this really incredible form of intimacy between human beings where we pool resources with people we've never met to pay for things that we all care about. Uh, I came across a quote during the reporting for this episode, and it said something like, taxation is the price civilized communities pay in order to remain civilized. Hmm. And I I imagine that the forms of taxation that we choose in Vermont probably reveal a lot about who we are as Vermonters. Hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to exploring this topic through that framework and through everything that you're going to bring but no pickerels on the shores of Lake Willoughby for you. No pickerels. Uh, there will be no no nips of Yukon Jack and a canvas shanty. Um, but we are going to be diving into a really urgent policy debate over education financing. Um, and it's a debate that could have some pretty meaningful impact on who pays what to fund our schools. And as we're also going to hear, it, it might even be a debate over the future of schools themselves. Well, let's get into it. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. Here on the show, we answer your questions about Vermont, our region, and its people. There is no topic too frivolous or too serious or in this case, too structural. If there's no connection between the ability to pay and the tax, then it makes you wonder how that affects what it's supposed to be funding. 
Today's question is essentially, what if? What if we raised money for our public schools in a totally different way? My colleague Pete Hirschfeld scopes out a hypothetical that some lawmakers want to turn into reality. Often bills like this that make major changes are a multi-year process. We have support from VPR sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Amanda Calder is 37 years old, and she lives in Winooski. Um, I grew up in Vermont. I went to school in Ohio, and then I came back. Been here just working for a while. Yep. Working at the Howard Center with people with developmental disabilities. Amanda, by the way, is our winning question asker for this episode about education funding. And she has a close personal connection to the education part. My dad is, is a retired public high school teacher, um, and my aunt was an elementary school teacher, and my grandma was an elementary school teacher. So, um, Amanda is passionate about the funding part of this question because she spends a lot of time thinking about economic theory. I'm a socialist. And not an idle one. I was part of Occupy back in the day and so forth. So caring about having a more equal society is something I've cared about for a long time. Amanda thinks income inequality is the scourge of our time. She believes taxation policies are part of the problem. To put a finer point on it, here in Vermont, Amanda thinks the property tax is making rich folks richer and poor folks poorer. I mean, well, it's not based on ability to pay. So, like, if you get on a, if you lose your job, you have to pay the same amount of property taxes. If you get sick and can't work, you have to pay the same amount of property taxes. If you, if your partner leaves you, so you have half as much income, but you're trying to keep your house, like, you have to pay the same amount of property taxes. If you retire, um, you know, you have to pay the same amount of property taxes. Quick clarification here. There is some, quote, income sensitivity built into our property tax code. More on that later. But Amanda's point is well taken. So you've got two neighbors who both live in houses worth $300,000. One of them makes one hundred and fifty dollars a year, the other makes five hundred dollars a year. In our system, they both pay the same amount in property taxes. This makes no sense to Amanda, and she wants to know. What would it look like if the taxes we had to pay for education were based on income rather than property value, with an equal tax on capital gains income? As it turns out, a lot of people have been contemplating this very same question. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Here on BLS, we invite our winning question askers to join us for our reporting. So Amanda joined me on Zoom to talk to Bram Kleppner. I work at Danforth Pewter. Um, oh, cool. So, you know, we have this workshop in Middlebury where I am now. Where we Kleppner's actually the CEO of Danforth Pewter, but Amanda and I are less interested in his job than we are in the volunteer gig he landed a few years ago. I was one of three commissioners on the Vermont Tax Structure Commission, which was created three years ago by the legislature. The legislature's charge for the Tax Structure Commission was to review Vermont's entire tax structure and come up with ways to make it more fair, more sustainable, and a lot simpler than it is now. 
And the big recommendation they came back to the legislature with, it was to change the education funding system and base it on income taxes instead of property taxes, which makes Kleppner an obvious candidate for Amanda to pose her question to. On the question of what would happen if we based education tax purely on income, um, uh, you know, to answer the question straight and directly, things would be better. Better, Kleppner says, as in more progressive. Not like the progressive political party, but progressive economically, meaning most higher-income Vermonters would pay more for schools and most middle-income folks would pay less. Before we go deeper on that, a quick side note. One thing you need to know about our current education financing system is that even though it's based on property taxes, most Vermonters, about two-thirds actually, do pay at least partially based on their income. That's because of something known as income sensitivity. Remember when Amanda was talking about people who encounter some kind of hardship that reduces their income but doesn't change their property value? If you lose your job, you have to pay the same amount of property taxes. If you get sick and can't work, you have to pay the same amount of well, property Well, policymakers foresaw this conundrum, so they tried to address it by saying, okay, if you make below a certain amount of money, then we're going to lower your property taxes so that you don't go bankrupt or have to sell your house. You know, the system has done a fairly good job of producing equity in terms of people paying somewhat based on what they can afford. But it's impossibly complex, Kleppner says, and crucially, it's still regressive, as in the opposite of progressive. Because if you and your partner make between $100,000 and $150,000 a year, you're paying about 3% of your income, on average, toward education taxes. 3%. But people with more than half a million dollars a year of income you know, pay something like, like half a percent of their income, roughly speaking. If we switch to an income-based system, Kleppner says we'd see wealthier people paying a similar percentage to middle-income folks. We're talking averages here, though, and those averages elide the reality for some working-class Vermonters. Yeah, so I'm a sixth-generation Fitch to live on this family farm. This is Bob Fitch. He and his wife live in East Montpelier. And this is the house that I grew up in. Grew up milking cows here, actually, until his grandfather sold off the herd when he was 12. It was a dairy farm. My grandfather was a dairy farmer. But now my father and I have about anywhere between 15 to 20 uh, beef cows. Scottish Highlanders, the one with the big horns and long hair. Fitch and his wife are in that class of Vermonters getting squeezed by the existing education funding system, a class of the so-called cash-poor, property-rich. But rich is in quotation marks because what is really the value of the land? Um, it's not really a farm anymore. We, we don't generate income off the land that we're using. They are paying property taxes on that land, though, in the old house that sits on it. What is your, do you mind telling me what your uh, homestead is assessed at? I believe it's... 350? Do you want me to go grab the bill? Do you, do you mind? I mean, it'd be great if we could like, actually break down the numbers here. Sounds close. Uh, $375,100 is the taxable value. And do you know what you're paying in property taxes? Just shy of $9,000 a year. Fitch works at the state, at the Department of Environmental Conservation. His wife is a high school teacher, two public sector workers with a one-year-old daughter whose household income puts them just a shade above the $130,000 cutoff where income sensitivity kicks in. 
I mean, were there conversations that you all had where you were like, God, do we really want to have to lock ourselves into a $9,000 tax bill every year? Yeah, it was certainly a part of the conversation. But they wanted open space, wanted to keep roots on the family land. Fitch says he started paying much closer attention to the local school budget once he saw his first property tax bill. Do you feel like we're spending too much on schools? <laughs> um, ah, geez. With a spouse that is a high school teacher, no. So they just figure out a way to make it work. Tight budgeting. you got to really pay close attention to what you're spending money on. Knowing that you have this big burdensome bill coming down the line every year. And Fitch says he and his wife worry about whether they're going to be able to swing this over the long term. You know, are we going to have enough to fund our daughter's future education? Like, what is that going to look like? It's it's all considerations that we <laughs> make me lose a little bit of sleep at night, yeah. Fitch isn't a socialist like our question asker Amanda, but when it comes to education financing, he says he's seen enough to convince him that this part of the system, at least, needs to change. So he's with Amanda on this one. Fund schools with an income tax, not a property tax. You think philosophically we should be asking higher income earners to be paying more than they're paying right now towards schools so that people in your and your wife's situation can pay less? Yeah. Absolutely. When we come back, the story of the time we almost switched to this approach. We recognized or acknowledged that there was really two forms of wealth that was taxable in towns. And a renewed push in Montpelier to make the change. That's right after this on Brave Little State. It's Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Today, we are answering this question from Amanda Calder of Winooski. What would it look like if the taxes we had to pay for education were based on income rather than property value with an equal tax on capital gains income? Amanda's question is in good hands with our Statehouse reporter, Pete Hirschfeld. So the reason I reached out to you, Paul, is because I figured if we're going to do a story about overhauling the education financing system, it might make sense to find out how we ended up with what we have now. Well, it depends where you want to start. Uh, <laughs> well, well, you tell me where you think we, where, where, where does, where should the timeline start for this? Paul Silo is one of the architects of the law that gave birth to the property-based education funding system we have today, Act 60. You know, I was elected to the legislature in 1988. So for me, it starts in, well, it started in 1986, actually, before I went to the legislature. If you think the school funding system we have right now is screwy, then you'll find it hard to imagine how Vermont used to do things. Back then, school districts raised money for schools locally. There was no statewide education tax, which meant towns with lots of valuable properties could raise a ton of money with a tiny property tax rate, and towns with less valuable properties had giant tax rates that raised very little. Take Hardwick, where CeeLo lives. The property tax rate there was $3 per $100 of assessed property value. On the other end of the state, in Stratton, with its ski resort and pricey second homes, people were paying $0.03. Cents. And they would, everybody looked at that and said, this is crazy, you know, that 
Mountain happens to be in one town or IBM happens to be in one town and just the kids in the town in that town get the benefit of that plant or that ski area or whatever. Elected officials had been trying to solve this problem for decades by creating a statewide education tax to make the funding more equitable and make sure the quality of a kid's education wasn't a function of where she lived. But it was a brutal lift politically and wouldn't come to pass until 1997, when a famous Supreme Court decision said the existing funding structure violated students' constitutional right to equal access to education and basically forced elected officials to do something about it. As chair of one of the legislature's big tax committees, CeeLo ran point on drafting a bill, and this was an inflection point, a time when Amanda's vision for funding education differently almost came to pass. We recognized or acknowledged that there was really two forms of wealth that was taxable in towns. One was property, and the other was income. CeeLo and his colleagues in the House of Representatives, they wanted to go with income mainly because they thought it was a much better measure of residents' ability to pay. And so they did. They passed a bill that based school taxes on people's income instead of their property. There was one big problem, though. The governor at the time, Howard Dean, a Democrat, wasn't a fan. The governor had been clear he would veto an income tax. He would veto an, uh, you know, an increase in the income tax. And, did, he, did he not and like I, the optics, or, or did he have... Uh, more substantive concerns with what an income tax would do? I, could, I couldn't say. You'd have to ask him. So I did. Is Paul's recollection correct? Did, did you yes. oppose? Okay, so what was... Absolutely. Uh, for, for, for three reasons. Howard Dean was successful in blocking the income-based framework, and that's ultimately why we have Act 60, the property-based system we use today. As for those three reasons Dean opposed taxing income... He says the first and most important is that the property tax is a much more stable funding source. And if you went by the income tax, every time there was a recession, suddenly school funding would have been plunged uh, into an abyss. There are some people who say Dean's wrong about that, and we'll talk to them soon. But for now, let's skip to reason two that Dean opposed basing school taxes on income, which is fear that it would scare away wealthy residents. And there's some limit. I don't know what it is, but there's some limit at some point where tax avoidance kicks in in a big way. And the third reason, Dean says, is that the legislature came up with an elegant compromise in the form of that income sensitivity provision we talked about earlier that makes it so most Vermonters' education tax bills are tied to their income anyways. So that that the property tax bill you get is not the one you pay for a large majority of of, uh, Vermonters. Howard Dean doesn't hold public office anymore, But as a private citizen, he says he still thinks it'd be a terrible idea for Vermont to move to an income-based system now. And what's interesting is that he entirely rejects Amanda Calder's concerns about wealthier Vermonters not paying their fair share under the property-based system. If I were making a billion dollars a year, my property taxes would be a much smaller percentage of my taxes if I was making $100,000 a year. So it's kind of a ridiculous argument. Dean says there aren't that many super high-income households in Vermont anyway, and that the the tax-the-rich mentality functions much more effectively at the national level than in a tiny state like ours. I think this this sort of um, grievance politics of people who make a million dollars a year uh, is silly, because there are very few people who do in this state. It is true that only about 1% of all tax filers in Vermont report more than $500,000 in annual income. Um, I I just think it's silly to make a big deal out of a small handful of people 
and say they should pay more, they should pay more, when the money doesn't exist there either. Dean says he's open to the argument that working-class Vermonters are getting pinched by the current system. And if that's true, and middle-class people are struggling, then you make it more income-sensitive. There's nothing wrong with doing that. The mechanism that the legislature designed still works. You may have to fiddle with the numbers, but you shouldn't fiddle with the construct of how you uh, tax people. But what if that construct is structurally flawed? The effort to overhaul education funding isn't the first time the property tax has come under scrutiny in Vermont. You might have heard of the current use program, which applies a lower property tax rate to farms and forest lands. A person named Deb Brighton helped create that program back in the late 1970s. And really that's why I got interested in the topic was my background was forestry. And I was worried about losing forests because of property taxes. Before the current use program came into being, landowners and farmers were selling off large tracts of land because they couldn't afford their property tax bills. And then I began to realize property taxes were a problem for more than just the trees. Three decades later, Brighton is a leading researcher on tax issues in Vermont. Remember that tax structure commission that Bram Kleppner was on? The one that recommended to lawmakers that we move to an income-based system for education funding? Brighton served on that panel, too. We looked at the property tax against the ability to pay, and we found that there was really no connection. And if there's no connection between the ability to pay and the tax, then it makes you wonder how that affects what it's supposed to be funding. Property taxes are a vestige of a different time, Brighton says, a time when your physical assets were a pretty good measure of your wealth and therefore a good measure of your ability to contribute to the public good. I know we've gone back in time already in this episode, but Brighton told me some fascinating history. Back in the 19th century, she says, the property tax was more encompassing. Not just your house, your land, your barn, your cows. Listers visited everyone's address, calculated the value of everything you owned, and then the state assessed your taxes based on the value of all your stuff. If you had a wagon with a bench seat, It was useful, and it was in the useful category, but if it was a carriage, and that was defined as it had springs under the seats, then it was in the luxury category. And therefore, subject to a higher rate, because you could afford luxury and presumably contribute more to public goods. We've whittled that system down over the years, though, to the point where it's now just a tax on your home. Let's go back to those two neighbors that live in houses worth the same amount of money. If one has a used Corolla in the garage, i.e. a wagon, and the other one has a $100,000 Porsche, our modern-day luxury carriage, our property tax system doesn't care anymore. Brighton has been running some numbers for the legislature lately. According to that modeling, if Vermont were to switch to the system that Amanda and the Tax Structure Commission are recommending, here's what would happen. People who make a quarter million or more a year would start paying more toward education, and people making between 90 grand and 175 grand would, by and large, pay a little less. In some cases, like Bob Fitch's, a lot less. The Tax Structure Commission grounded all its recommendations in a core ethos. And that is, and this is a quote from the report here, the overall tax structure should impose a higher burden on people with greater ability to pay and minimize the burden on people with low incomes. Somebody looking at the tax structure in ancient Athens. (laughs) Um, Basically, they have this principle that 
Everybody should contribute what they can contribute to the common good. And Brighton says taxing income to pay for education hews a lot closer to this Athenian ideal than taxing property. Former Governor Howard Dean, if you recall, was concerned that relying on an income tax would make school funding too vulnerable to big swings in the economy. Well, Brighton says there's modeling that shows that over the past 25 years, that wouldn't have borne out. And in any event, the commission's proposal bases tax rates on last year's income. So a precipitous decline in personal income would not, as Dean fears, plunge schools into an abyss. So essentially that removes big chunks of the volatility question. Then there's Dean's other concern about tax avoidance. Is there any empirical or quantitative evidence that allows us to know the point at which assessments on high-income earners will compel them to leave for friendlier jurisdictions? Not that I know of. But nevertheless, your question is, at what point would people decide to live somewhere other than this brave little state? Why would they do that? At the beginning of this episode, we talked about how a lot of people think this question about education taxes is as much about the future of schools as it is about how we pay for them. Don Tinney is one of the people making that argument. He's a president of the Vermont NEA, the union that represents most Vermont educators. The property tax is universally unpopular and often can lead to eroding support for Vermont's children. And our question asker, Amanda Calder, makes a really interesting point about this. We don't vote on the defense budget. You know, we don't vote on if we're going to spend trillions of dollars on the F-35s or on having military bases in five million countries, slightly exaggerating. But like, you know, we don't vote on that. We don't vote on a lot of things, but we vote on our school budgets. Um, And so that's where I think a lot of people's like the unaffordability of being able to afford a place to live or being able to afford to live like comes out. What we have noticed in various communities is that sticker shock uh, leads to a disgruntled taxpayer come town meeting day and they decide, you know, I have to save money somewhere. I have to I have to cut back on my property tax. I'll vote against the school budget. It needs to be said here that the vast majority of Vermonters do support their local schools. While more than 90% of school budgets get approved on town meeting day, but Tinney says the fact that budgets are getting approved doesn't mean they're getting the money they need to educate kids. Our school boards sometimes are more austere than they need to be because they fear presenting a budget that will be voted down. The question we're talking about today What would it look like if we paid for schools with an income tax instead of a property tax is a question that Vermont lawmakers are pondering as we speak. Hi. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Representatives Mari Cordes and Tanya Vihovsky introduced legislation last year called House Bill 388 that would adopt, with some alterations, the proposal outlined in the Tax Structure Commission report. Here's Cordes to explain the general concept. So all Vermont house sites would be exempt from paying school property taxes. That would be replaced um, by this state education tax, which is a form of income tax, but it's not like the regular state income tax. There are a lot of reasons Cordes and Bihovsky support this change. They think it would make the tax code simpler. They also think it'd have the effect of increasing overall revenue to the education fund and help smaller schools stay afloat. 
But more foundationally, they say this is a matter of basic fairness and equity for the middle-income Vermonters that are paying proportionally higher shares of their incomes for education than wealthier residents. Here's Vihovsky. As we know, people who are able to to buy higher cost property, um, it's often a much smaller percentage of what their actual income is. But what people's actual income is doesn't always give a complete picture of their wealth either. I'm talking about generational wealth. And our question asker, Amanda, was actually curious about this. While an income-based tax may be a better reflection of individual wealth than a property-based tax, it still doesn't account for money people have inherited or been gifted and keep in places like the stock market. Part of my question was about um, capital gains taxes. Um, and so I was wondering, would capital gains be taxed at the same rate under your proposal as regular income? The proposal from the Tax Structure Commission was silent on the issue of capital gains taxes. Amanda and I asked Cordes and Vihovsky about the concept, and they say it's a conversation worth having. And there will be plenty of time for that conversation because their education funding bill is definitely not getting fast-tracked this year. Cordes, a Democrat, says it's not for lack of support. There are even some prominent Republicans who think switching to an income tax is a good idea. But big changes like these take time, Cordes says, and the fact that they're being talked about counts as progress. And often bills like this that make major changes are a multi-year process. And this is how we start the conversation, how we maintain the conversation and, and pull more people in. It's been 25 years since the last major education financing overhaul brought us Act 60. I asked Deb Brighton, the tax expert we talked to earlier, about whether it's outlived its useful life. Thomas Jefferson said that one generation shouldn't bind another generation, and he calculated a generation to be 19 and a half years. It's been more than that. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Amanda Calder for the great question. If you have a question about Vermont, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. That's where you can sign up for the BLS newsletter and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. You can also call our BLS hotline anytime at 802-552-4880. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. Peter Hirschfeld reported this episode. Lead production, mix, and sound design by yours truly, with additional production and editing from the Brave Little State team, Josh Crane, Myra Flynn, and Marlon Hyde. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to everyone who reached out to share your thoughts on this topic, including Maggie, Jonathan, Bob, Caleb, and Michael. We are a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from VPR sustaining members. You can become one of those at bravelittlestate.org slash donate, or just tell your friends about the show. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. Mm-hmm.